We've spent the um, last, really since January, go, going through Colossians. We finished that up last week. And I want to spend just a couple of weeks thinking about the, the central concept of the whole Scripture, which is the Gospel. If you were to sum up the message of Scripture in just a word, it would be Gospel. It would be the truth that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to save sinners. That's one of the affirmations that the scripture that we have is valid and good and true from start to finish is that it presents to us one consistent theme from start to finish, namely that we're sinners in need of redemption, that redemption comes only through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we want to spend just probably this week and next week thinking about the gospel from a couple of different angles. Uh, One author comments about the gospel this way. He says, I blame God for salvation in the sense that he is totally responsible. It's a funny way to say it, to blame God for salvation, and yet his words ring true. If we were to credit anybody with the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to credit God. We blame him. He's the one who thought it up. He's the one who comes to this conclusion that sinners are in need of redemption. If you were to summarize the gospel, there are probably a variety of ways to summarize it. One author, Paul Washer, puts it like this. He says, The gospel refers to a very specific message, the salvation accomplished for a fallen people through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That encapsulates it pretty well. He expands on that. Let me read to you a lengthy quote, and I want you to give your attention to this because this gives, in a broader way, what the gospel is. Paul Washer again writes, In accordance with the Father's good pleasure, the eternal Son, who is equal with the Father and is the exact representation of His nature, willingly left the glory of heaven was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin and was born the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth. As a man, he walked on this earth in perfect obedience to the law of God. In the fullness of time, men rejected and crucified him. On the cross, he bore man's sin, suffered God's wrath, and died in man's place. On the third day, God raised him from the dead, This resurrection is the divine declaration that the Father has accepted His Son's death as a sacrifice for sin. Jesus paid the penalty for man's disobedience, satisfied the demands of justice, and appeased the wrath of God. Forty days after the resurrection, the Son of God ascended into the heavens, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and was given glory, honor, and dominion over all. There, in the presence of God, he represents his people and makes requests to God on their behalf. All who acknowledge their sinful, helpless state and throw themselves upon Christ, God will fully pardon, declare righteous, and reconcile unto himself. This is the gospel of God and of Jesus Christ, his Son. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you believe the gospel. You believe the message that God has come up with that God has executed for the benefit of fallen sinful humanity like you and me. We don't want to just take some author's word for it, right? We want this to be truth. This isn't just some message that man made up. 
In fact, the message is so glorious that man couldn't make this up. It's so stupefyingly amazing that God, the Almighty One of Heaven, would come down to earth in His Son to rescue sinners like you and me, that man didn't conjure up this gospel. This is a message that's been delivered to us and then delivered to us by apostles who received it from the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. 1 Corinthians 5, 13 and 14. You might want to turn there just so you see it in your Bible if you've never seen it there. Is the summary of the gospel message. Not as long as the quote I just read to you, but encapsulating the same truths. The Apostle Paul communicates this message to us. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. Christ was raised for us. All in agreement with the plan of God as revealed in the very scriptures that you hold in your hand, written hundreds of years before that message was even written by the Apostle Paul. Paul adds in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Apostle Paul made it his whole ambition to make the gospel known to the ends of the earth. But Paul wasn't the only one who carried this message. Peter, oh Peter, he tells it to us as well. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, Paul is speaking to the Jewish crowds that are there at Pentecost, the same crowds that were calling out for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. He now declares to them, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's proclamation of the gospel. Christ crucified in accordance with God's plan. Christ raised in accordance with God's plan. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter encapsulates the gospel again by saying, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And he adds in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. But it's not just the New Testament authors who proclaim the gospel message, it's in the Old Testament as well. And again, if you will, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament, written about 700 years before Christ showed up on the scene, and yet it describes his life down to the very last detail of what he accomplished for sinners. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ crucified for sinners. Christ crushed for sin. The author of Hebrews picks this up in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 to 27. He tells us about the priesthood of Christ. And he says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. We can go to passage after passage after passage, Old Testament, New Testament, back and forth like a tennis match, just seeing that from the start, God has intended to save sinners through his Son. That's the message of the gospel. It's what God has done for guilty sinners, how he saves us from the damnation that we deserve for our sins by Christ bearing our sins on the cross. And all who acknowledge this message, all who acknowledge what Christ has done, come to him, leaving their sins behind, letting go of them as though they're dirty trash, which they are, and coming to Christ empty-handed, acknowledging that in Christ alone is the forgiveness of sins, the salvation of your soul. Those are who he receives, welcomes into his family, pardons of all of their sins, bore the wrath for those sins on the cross, gives you eternal life, adopts you as his The Father adopts you as his child and welcomes you into his kingdom, which entails eternal life, perfection, peace for all eternity. It's the message of the gospel. It's so good. We need to think about it deeply. There are some people, not many, but there are some who recognize their plight they realize that they have sin in their lives. And they're uncomfortable with that. And it gnaws at them. They realize that they have rebelled against the standard that God's put in place. And they've done it so badly that there's really no hope in themselves. For those people who are struggling in that arena, who know their sin, know that they're guilty, and are looking for some sort of peace, some sort of appeasement for the guilt that they have for all the sins that they've committed. There's only one place that they can run. There's a letter that was written to Charles Spurgeon. He lived about 200, 150 years ago. This man was writing to Spurgeon, trying to get some appeasement for his own heart and recognizing really his own apathy towards the things of God. This man writes to Charles Spurgeon, Dear Sir, I try to pray, but cannot. I make resolutions only to break them. I, from time to time, listen to you when you speak of the glory set apart for the saints, but when you describe their joys and their feelings, but I feel myself as having nothing to do with them. Oh, sir, that Sunday morning when you spoke of the hypocrite, I felt that you described me. I go to chapel to hear the word preached. I return home and make resolutions I go to work, then out into the world, and forget all until time for preaching comes again. 
I read the Bible, but do not feel interested. It seems no more to me than a book I have before read, dry and insipid. Christ has said that of all who come to him, he will not send any away. How am I to come? I feel that I cannot come. I would if I could, but I cannot. At times, I think that I will give it all up that I will not go to chapel anymore. Yet when the time comes, I cannot stay away, but feel compelled to go again once more. Do, dear sir, tell me, how am I to find Jesus? How am I to know that he died for me and that I belong to his family? That's a man in agony who knows his own sin and knows his sin goes so far as even to make him apathetic towards the things of God. Have you been there? You try to pray and you can't. You go to church and you might resolve in a moment to do something, but you lose all resolve. You have no power to pick up the wheels and go with it. You feel the weight, but then it lifts, not because you're freed from it, but just because you forget. And then you come back to it and you remember, but then you can't do anything with it. What do you do? What do you do in that pitiful state? Spurgeon replied with a letter, and he wrote, quote, Now, if you are such a sinner, I am glad to be able to tell you the only way of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus. There is the cross and a bleeding God-man upon it. Look to him. Look to him and be saved. There is the Holy Spirit able to give you every grace. Look in prayer to the sacred three, one God, and then you will be delivered. And he signs it, I am your anxious friend, right again, C.H. Spurgeon. What did he point him to? He pointed him to Christ. He pointed him away from himself, to any hope in himself to be able to pick up the wheels and go with it. And he pointed him to the cross where Jesus Christ hung, dying for sinners like this man, and said, look there and be saved. That's it. There's a Savior. Look to him and be saved. There's a gospel because we have a triune God who is a saving God. He's the only saving God. And that's what I want to tell you the remainder of our time this morning, that God is our Savior. He's our Savior. There is a God, and he is a saving God. Do not look to yourself for salvation. Look to the God who saves for salvation. Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you at times feel a hypocrite? Do you know yourself to be so laden with guilt that you have no capacity in yourself to get rid of it? You need to know there's a God who saves. God who is the Savior. Let me try to show this to you break this up just into a few points. First, God is a Savior. Simple as that. If you look up the word Savior, you go home and do your own search on the word Savior in the Scripture, you will see time and time again that title is taken unto God. He is a Savior. The gospel, the good news that have, has come to us, that we have a Savior, is rooted in the fact that God is a Savior. It's rooted in the fact that God in his own character and nature is a God who saves because he's a God who who is merciful and a God who loves. 
To say that he's a savior is to say that he is one who delivers from trouble. He rescues the drowning man, the endangered child. He's a shepherd who goes to find the lost lamb. He's a protective shepherd who drives away the wolves and the lions. He protects, he saves, he rescues. He brings back from the brink. Let's set the big picture of Scripture for a moment. You just step back and see Scripture on a very macro level. We're talking 30,000 feet, mountaintop view, looking over the whole broad spectrum of what's going on in the Bible. You know two main things. There are two key things you need to know. One is that God has a reputation for being the creator of everything. He's the maker of heaven and earth. That's Genesis 1 and 2. He made every last detail of this world. He set it all up. He created the whole universe, trees and slugs and all. He made it every, everything. He's the creator. But you know how the story goes. Very quickly, his creation fell into futility through the sin of Adam, who ate the fruit. And so now it says in Romans 8.20, the creation was subjected to futility. Man sinned, broke God's clear command, do not eat from this tree. And now God says, cursed is the ground because of you. And so we live in a fallen world. That's the world that we live in right now. And so slugs eat and devour trees now instead of live in harmony with them. We have all of this catastrophe, all of this disaster, all of this sin because this world is under the curse. So God is the creator of heaven and earth. He clearly is that. And that's the first thing you need to know about his reputation. But from the very beginning of after the fall, you see another element of his reputation. You see not only that he's the creator of the first creation, but that he is the worker of the new creation. That's really the way the Bible divides. You've got the first order, which has fallen into sin and corruption, and then you've got the new order that God is working about in the new creation. And so God is a new creator, the new creation. His plan of deliverance begins immediately. And so once you know that this world has fallen into disrepair through the sin of Adam, and you know that God is not done with this world but bringing about a new creation... The linchpin between those things is that God is a Savior. He comes into the world that's so corrupted by sin to redeem it, to reconcile it to himself, to bring it back to him. And God has done this. He's begun it. It says in Colossians 1.13 of those that have been rescued through Jesus Christ that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Revelation 21, verse 5, God from the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. That's the work of God. The first creation and the new creation. That's what he's up to in this world. God is known as creator and God is known as the new creator. And so it should be expected as you encounter God everywhere in the scriptures that he is going to be a savior who's rescuing from the corrupted, fallen world that we're in and bringing them into his new creation. So God is Savior. You see lots of examples of this. If you read your Old Testament, you know lots of examples where you see God as a deliverer, God as a Savior. You see them kind of on just the, the physical level. Let me list off some of them for you. 
Right at the start, after Adam and Eve sinned, remember God clothed Adam and Eve with skins. From the very start, God is rescuing them from their shame, their guilt. He's covering them. Remember the story of Noah and the flood. The whole world is so bad that God decides he's going to flood the whole earth, but he rescues eight people through the ark. He delivers. He saves. If you think of the chaos of the Tower of Babel, you've got all of those sinners who construct a tower to show how great humanity is in rebellion against God. God comes down, confuses the languages of the whole world, and you think, well, how is man going to be able to accomplish anything now? And you say, well, they're not really, except for God's grace. But out of that chaos, God calls a man, Abram, and makes a promise to, through him that all the nations of the world be blessed. And you see God is a rescuing God, a savior. You see that God brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. You see that God spares uh, Israel in the early days when a whole famine comes over the earth. He rescues them by sending Joseph to Egypt. You see that Israel again and again and again is rescued from the dominion of the nations around them. You see the rescue of God when he rescues David from Saul's hand. You see the rescue of God when he delivers Hezekiah and Jerusalem from Assyrian invasion. You see the rescue of God when he brings Israel back from exile. You see the rescue of God when he keeps Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego safe in the flames of Nebuchadnezzar. You see the Jews saved from the evil plot of Haman, and you see Daniel saved from the mouths of the lions. God is a saving God. God is a savior. It's a theme that goes from start to finish. It's who he is. It's part of his character and his nature. It's not to say all that he is, but he is a savior. So crucial to know. The second thing I want you to know is that God is an exclusive savior. He's an exclusive savior. The gospel call is incredibly exclusive. It says, come to Christ and be saved. It's not less glorious because it's exclusive. It's actually more glorious. It's not that many paths lead to heaven. It's that there's one path paved by the blood of Christ. It shows how valuable God's Son is and how impossible it is for many other means to get to heaven. There are no other options. Israel, as a nation, grew up in a world that celebrated local deities, You would have a a God of the rain, a God of fertility, a God of the sun. You see this in Egypt. They have a God of the Nile, a God of frogs, a God of the cattle. They've got gods everywhere. This is the world that Israel lived in. And so when Yahweh appears to Israel, it would be the temptation of the nations around them to think, well, this is just a, a local deity. This is Israel's God, but there's the God of, gods of Egypt, the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Moabites, the gods of the Assyrians, the gods of the Babylonians. But the Lord God is not interested in being equated with those other gods. He's interested in snuffing them out because they are non-gods. They don't exist He exalts himself as the Lord of heaven and earth, the exclusive God. Among none, others are his peers. He is not a tribal deity. Joshua 3.11 says, Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He is not a local deity. He is God over all. 
There are no other real gods. There's him and him alone. This is the recitation of Israel in the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, or the Lord alone. There is none other. God belabors that point. If you turn with me to Isaiah 44, we'll work through a couple of passages. God says again and again that he is the only God. Isaiah 45, excuse me, I don't remember what I said. Isaiah 45, verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. It's pretty exclusive. That's it. Look at 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. He doesn't want anybody else taking credit with him. He alone is the one true God. 44.6, which we read earlier. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Because God, the God of the Bible, is the only true God, the only one, that means that if we want a God to save us, if we want someone divine to save us, if we want supernatural help, there is only one option. There's no one else. There's not a pantheon of gods that we can go to and we can choose Zeus or Hermes or Baal. Or pick your choice. There's only one. There's only one option. You go to the aisle in the grocery store of gods and there's only one aisle because there's only one God. There are none others. The God of the Bible is the only God. He claims exclusivity, power to create, the power to redeem. And then he declares in Isaiah 44, 11, I, I am the Lord and besides me, there is no Savior. That means... If you pick any other God, you pick Zeus, there's no salvation. You pick Allah, there's no salvation. There's no gospel. You pick any other religion, you pick Buddhism, there's no path of salvation that comes from above, it's all from below. You pick Hinduism and there are 30 million gods, there is no God who will come to save you from your sin. There's none. He is the only Savior. Besides me, there is no Savior. The gospel is rooted in the fact that God saves and that he is the only God who can save because he's the only God out there. He's the only option. I think there's more than this. It's not just that God is some reluctant God in heaven thinking, I'm the only option here, so I guess I better do something for these pitiful people down here. There's no one else going to do anything, so I guess I'll do it. It's not his heart at all. God is an exclusive Savior. But think about what he's an exclusive Savior of. He's an exclusive Savior of sinners. God is an exclusive Savior of sinners. You get the picture. 
of those heroic scenes. When a building is up in flames and you see the the damsel in distress with an infant in her window on the third floor crying out for help. No one can get her and the heroic fireman gets on the ladder and climbs up there and rescues that lady from the fire. Pulls out this great heroic act and we applaud that and we're right to do so. When it becomes a wretch who's on the third story, who's not even calling out for help, who's a drunk, who's calling out to the firefighters below and mocking them. You guys are wearing all red, you losers. You can barely lift that hose. You're mocking that guy, mocking them. Who's going to go up there? Let them burn. Be most people's indifferent attitude towards it. I'm not risking my life for that guy. Not going to go and get him. We're in such deep trouble. So entrenched in our sins that Colossians 1.21 says that we're alienated and hostile in mind. That means we're hostile towards God. Romans 3.10-12 through 12 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Romans 5.10 says we're enemies. We're the ones in that third story flaming building saying to God, we don't want you. We've turned our back on him. We want to go in our own way. We see your laws written out there. We're going to live in our own fiery palace and do all the sin we want without you, God. And God would have been just to leave us in that building and let us burn. It's not the heart of God. That's not our God. He's the only one who could do anything about it, and he could say rightly, I'm not going to. They don't deserve it. It's not hard to see that our world is messed up. It's harder to see that we are messed up. Maybe harder to accept it. There's a story that's been passed along through the years about G.K. Chesterton. A newspaper was polling some authors and sent out this question to a variety of people. The question, what's wrong with the world? And they wanted to solicit responses so that people could write back about what they think is wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world today? G.K. Chesterton wrote back and replied simply, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. To expand on that, he also wrote, in one sense, and that the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is, or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. Until you admit that you're broken, in need of help, that you're a sinner, you won't see your need for Christ. If you're having trouble getting there, if you're having trouble understanding that you're a sinner in need of salvation, read the Bible. In all seriousness, pick it up, read it. Read the Old Testament. Read what God does with sinners in the Old Testament. Read how strong God is in the Old Testament. 
Pick up the New Testament. Read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and see that he calls people not just to not commit adultery, but not even to lust. Not to murder, but not to hate. And see how you live up to the standard. Deal honestly with it. Be willing to say in response to the question, what's wrong with the world? I am. The easiest thing is to point, pick, point fingers. What's wrong with the world? Republicans. What's wrong with the world? Democrats. What's wrong with the world? Communists. What's wrong with the world? Capitalists. What's wrong with the world? Atheists. What's wrong with the world? Buddhists. What's wrong with the world? I am. Somebody's pointing the finger at you. Just accept it. You're in one of those groups. You're the problem. You're the problem. I've had 6,000 years of humanity in sin, and we have not figured it out yet how to live a righteous life on our own. That should be an example to us. Nobody has gotten it. Nobody's reached that state of sinless perfection. Nobody's reached there save Christ. It's the kind of world God has to deal with. And you would think he would be right just to leave it and let it burn. We're so deep in trouble. Yet the scripture introduces us to the good news that God doesn't just let it burn. When you go to so-called other gods and other saviors, you'll find that there's no savior besides him. But when you look To the God of Scripture, you will find that God is our Savior. He's our exclusive Savior. He's our loving Savior who gives of himself to rescue the person on the third floor saying, no, God. That's the kind of person he came to save. You see that in the life of Christ. Who did he come after? He came after sinners. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. He's the one who leaves the 99 to go find the sheep that has gone astray to rescue that sheep, put it on his shoulders, and return back to the flock. That's who he went to get. You see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Paul, who was a scourge against the church, who hated Jesus Christ with a passion. God intervened in his life, forgave all of his sins, and called him to a life of peace with the God that he once hated. No wonder 13 letters of the New Testament are just brimming with the grace of God and the gospel for us to saturate our souls over what God has done for us. Because that man, Paul, was redeemed even though he was a blasphemer and a murderer and wanted nothing to do with Christ. But Christ came and rescued him. No one else did that. It was God working in Christ. And that's the final point, is that God exclusively saves sinners through his Son. God exclusively saves sinners through his Son. So many of the Old Testament accomplishments of God and deliverance are physical. You think of Daniel and the lions, where he shuts the mouths. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where he keeps them in the flames and lets them come out. You think of how God preserved Jerusalem and Hezekiah from the Assyrians that were ready to just devour that land, and he keeps them out. Think of how 
God opened the Red Sea and let Israel walk through and protects them from the Egyptians. He saved them in a very physical way, but the ultimate act of mercy, the ultimate deliverance that God is always moving his purposes towards is delivering sinners from sin. Not so much that he delivers peoples from mouths of lions now. Not so much that he delivers us from the flames of the fire of Nebuchadnezzar or leads us through the path of the Red Sea, but he delivers us from the consequences that are demanded against our sin. The worst enemy that any one of us faces is dying in our sin. That's the sting of death. Jesus says in John 8, 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The person who dies with their sins still stamped on their life, will experience the worst fate of all. Hebrews 10, 26-27 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If you die in your sins, there's no hope. There's a fearful expectation of judgment. That's where we're led to. And try as we might to develop the antivenom for the sting of dying in our sins, we can't. There's been no cure that we can come up with. But God exclusively saves sinners through his Son. And so Jesus Christ went to the cross, and on the cross he became a curse for us. He experienced the judgment of God for our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He took it all. He took every last drop of God's wrath against our sins that we rightly deserve so that we could be redeemed and rescued from dying in our sins so that now when you die, you get bit by that bite of death. There is no venom pumped into your body. You will go to be with Christ who has redeemed you if you believe in him. And one day when Christ returns, your body will be resurrected and you will live in glory with him forever. That's the promise of the gospel. We might want to look back at the Old Testament and think, man, it'd be cool to be saved by God, by him parting the Red Sea and walking through on dry ground. We think that sea is closed. That's over with. God's not rescuing people like that anymore. We might think it'd be cool to be thrown in a den of lions and have the mouths shut by God, but we think that den's over with. Those lions are dead, and I don't want to really get around lions. We might think how cool it would be for God to rescue us like he rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames, but you know what? That furnace is gone, but the fire of hell is still burning, and we still have to fear that judgment if you're not in Christ, and so sinner, I call on you to come to Christ. Find the blood of Christ sufficient for your sins to be forgiven. Come to him. That gate, that floodgate of mercy is still open. It's wide open. And Christ is calling sinners to come to him. Even today, as the gospel is preached, that gate of mercy, that river of God's saving grace is being offered to sinners who would hear Christ and believe in him. Turn from your sin and come to Christ. There's no other salvation. There's no other Savior. God works through his Son. But dear friend, one day, the grip of death will get you. And if you are not in Christ, you will die in your sin. 
and you will find that the fires of God's judgment will come against you and you will have no defense, you will have no plea, and you will find no mercy. But the cross has opened up to you a floodgate of mercy that is available to you now. Let today be the day of salvation. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Repent of your sins. Embrace Christ as your Savior and your Lord because there is none other. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not done with the work of salvation, that you are still calling sinners to salvation. Thank you, Father, for the many in this room who have received Christ, and I would ask, Lord, that you would draw more to yourself, that there would be more who would put their trust in the work that you've done through Christ to save sinners. Oh, God, we have no hope. We have no plea before you except for Christ. He is our plea. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to this world, to being crucified on the cross and giving sinners hope to be reconciled with our God. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.